Section 4 of The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 8, May 1896. This is a LibreVox recording. All LibreVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibreVox.org. Recording by Julie Burks. The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 8, May 1896. Section 4. The Misfit Gown by Elmer Cook Rice. Honor and local fame went with the presidency of the Helping Hand Charitable Society, an organization of women from all the churches in the town of Brinkdale. The bylaws required the president to be unmarried and under thirty years of age. According to custom, she led the Grand March with the chairman of the selectmen at the annual ball of the society in the town hall, the greatest event of the town's social season. She was an important assistant to the overseers of the poor. She was accepted generally as the leader of the town's jolliest set. No tea, church, or coming-out party was considered successful without her presence. The Brinkdale Vox Populi reported her movements faithfully in its columns, and more than all was the office coveted because the maiden who held it was certain to be married within a twelve-month after the expiration of her term of service. This rule had held good in the cases of every one of the eleven incumbents of this position, and had come to be looked upon as law. The society had no other officer. The president was an autocrat, and must needs possess the highest executive ability. More than that, the position was one that called for beauty, graciousness, and tact, the principal elements of feminine popularity, all of which goes to show why the eligible young bachelors of Brinkdale had come to consider the hand in marriage of the president of the Helping Hand Charitable Society so valuable a prize. It is hardly necessary to state that there was lively rivalry for the office. The society was composed of nearly six hundred women, but only those between the ages of eighteen and thirty-five, married or unmarried, were allowed to vote. The canvass usually began at Thanksgiving. Election day was December 31st, the date of the annual meeting, and on the night of January 1st, the newly elected president was installed with elaborate exercises, followed by a reception and dance. The patronage of the office did not amount to much, only the appointment of half a dozen committees. Hence, a candidate could not promise favors for support, and was obliged to run on her popularity and general fitness. Last November, two young ladies came forth, one boldly, the other almost shrinkingly, as if she heard the voice of the people, and announced that they were candidates for the presidential chair. One was Isabel Cooper, twenty-two years old, handsome, of dark complexion and lithe figure, educated in the local high school, and finished at Miss Potterley's private seminary. Mr. Cooper was a wealthy leather jobber. Her mother was a delightful entertainer in an imposing, newly built, $80,000 house on Michigan Hillside, and the daughter had already proved her mettle at Brinkdale Society Affairs. Miss Cooper's name had been on the membership roll of the society for five years, but she had been an active member only sixteen months, her activity dating from the time of graduation from the seminary. The other candidate was Constance James, twenty-one years old, whose aggressive work as a member of several of the society's committees had made her name prominent since graduation from the high school at the age of eighteen. She was a blonde of average height, with grayish-blue eyes, 
waving golden hair and a happy, intelligent face, although forbidden by her father's straightened means from entertaining on a lavish scale. Miss James had made her modest home facing the town square a center of unaffected hospitality and had many devoted friends. Of course, this double announcement was the signal for a spirited campaign. A rallying committee of five, including two young married women, was immediately organized to boom Miss Cooper. At the same time, Miss James's interests were taken in hand by three active supporters, one, her chum, Rose Goodnow, the star of the Brinkdale Dramatic Club and the daughter of a well-known judge, the others, former classmates, who knew her intimately and were with her, heart and soul. On the evening of December 10th, these three met with Miss James at her home and discussed the situation at length. All agreed that the hardest kind of work was necessary to ensure success. "'Isabel now has more than a majority, I'm sure,' announced Rose, after a careful examination of two columns of figures. "'President Salisbury is on her side, and the President's influence counts for a good deal with the younger members. The two are neighbors, you know.' "'Yes,' said Mary Belknap, "'and I am very sure that all the ten new members admitted at the last monthly meeting are going to vote for her.' Her cousin looked them up and got them admitted for no purpose but to vote for Isabel. "'Oh, how mean!' exclaimed Hope Wright, the fourth member of the conference. "'I think if the society knew that, Miss Cooper never could be elected.' "'Never mind,' counseled the candidate. "'The odds are against us, but we won't play crybaby and give up before we are beaten.' The Cooper boomers met Christmas Eve at their candidate's home on Michigan Hillside, where the usual festivities were further enlivened by loud rejoicings over the anticipated victory. "'Isabel!' finally exclaimed Mrs. Smith. "'You've got a lead-pipe cinch!' "'A what?' chorused the rest in mingled amazement and alarm. "'A lead-pipe cinch!' repeated Mrs. Smith. "'I don't know what that is, but my husband said he had it when he received seven-eighths of all the votes cast for county clerk.' "'That's too good to be true,' commented Miss Cooper. "'I've gone over the list of all the voting members "'and can only figure a bare majority, "'but I feel pretty sure of winning. "'You've no idea of the troops of friends "'who come here and tell me they're sure I shall be elected. "'Of course you will be,' encouraged Mary Yeaton. "'I figured it all out, "'and you are certain to get nearly two-thirds of all the votes "'on the first ballot.' "'Oh, do you really think so?' queried Miss Cooper. Then, without waiting for a reply, she continued mysteriously. "'Well, since you feel so certain, I've the greatest mind—' "'Yes, I believe I will. Let you into a secret. Only you must promise on your honor not to breathe it to a soul.' Upon receiving the assurance that wild horses would not drag from them a syllable of the proposed disclosure, Miss Cooper proceeded breathlessly— Girls, I've got a new gown from Blue Fern, the New York tailor on purpose for the installation. I've been saving my pen money for it six months, and it just came this afternoon. A Blue Fern gown? Oh, you lucky girl. What is it? Do let us see it, came an excited chorus, followed by a general stampede in the direction of Miss Cooper's room. Here, the Blue Fern gown 
a magnificent creation of white striped silk powdered with Dresden figures and trimmed with Mechlin lace, elicited such ecstatic comments that Miss Cooper finally consented to be invested in the all-important gown by three volunteer dressers. When the last button was buttoned and the last fold laid in place, the delight of the spectators again bubbled out in admiring ejaculations. One exclaimed over the exquisite fabric, another over the bouffant sleeves, while others still were specially impressed by the graceful hang of the voluminous skirt, measuring nearly twelve yards round, or the strikingly original arrangement of lace upon the corsage. But it was the fit of the bodice that challenged the almost worshipful admiration of every person present, convinced all that the figure of fate had indeed singled out their candidate for success. You'll make the most stunning president the club has ever seen, was Miss Yeaton's parting salute as the party broke up, after a final exchange of congratulations. And as the little party trooped down Michigan Hillside together, they agreed that the gown must have cost at least $500, and that it was cheap at that. The meeting of the James Forces on the day following Christmas was a gloomy one, even Hope Wright, the most sanguine, was obliged to admit that defeat seemed inevitable. I went around on my bicycle to twenty-two of the doubtful members, said she, and found ten of them pledged to Cooper. I won over three, and made sure of the rest of the twenty-two. Our opponents have canvassed the society thoroughly, and unless we take extraordinary measures, we are sure to be defeated. Profound silence followed this depressing intelligence. Finally, Mary Belknap, whose father was an ex-member of the state legislature, leaned toward the others and said impressively, "'Girls, there is just one chance, and that is to break the forces of the Cooperites by nominating a dark horse.' "'A dark horse?' murmured the others vaguely. "'Yes, a third candidate, a girl from their ranks who will cut into Isabel's votes at first and make several ballots necessary.' I don't think Miss Cooper's name will wear successfully through a long meeting. We shall remain firm all the time, of course, and before long there will be a stampede in our favor. That's a capital idea, was Miss James's verdict. What a politician you are! But who shall be the third candidate? Sally Salstonstall, replied Mary. She's lukewarm in her support of Miss Cooper, and she simply couldn't decline the nomination. You see, she knows it's the stepping stone to matrimony, and she's just crazy to get married. Now, let's see. Of course, none of us can nominate her. Oh, after a moment's silence, I know. We'll get Carrie Holbrook to do it. But remember, not a word of this to another soul. Now, you wait while I go over to Carrie's and instruct her. Twenty minutes later, Miss Belknap burst into the room with consternation written in every line of her face. "'Girls, what do you think?' she gasped. "'Our flag is at half-mast. We're licked to speak plainly. That Isabel Cooper has sent Christmas boxes of candy to the small children of nearly every family in the society, with New Year's cards bearing the inscription, "'Do unto others as you would have others do unto you.' That will make her solid with everybody. The four sat numb with amazement. Shrewd workers they certainly were not, in comparison with the Napoleonic managers of the rival campaign. At length, Rose Goodenough broke the depressing silence. Is Carrie Holbrook with us? Yes, replied Miss Belknap. Then we'll carry through that plan. But it is not enough. Now, I have a scheme. 
Just listen. Four heads moved closer together while the speaker, lowering her voice to a mysterious whisper, outlined a plan, the audacity of which caused her hearers to open wide their eyes while their cheeks grew red with suppressed excitement. And you dare to do it? one asked when she finished. I do, replied Rose. It is our last chance. The Cooperites spent the afternoon of December 30th in congratulating their candidate and each other over a victory that already seemed as good as won. The gift of boxes of candy to the children had been a masterstroke. Indeed, a final count of her forces proved so satisfactory that Miss Cooper called up the town florist by telephone and ordered a bouquet of American Beauty roses delivered at her home on the morning of New Year's Day. It would furnish the final touch, she told herself, to her blue fern installation gown. That evening, at eight o'clock, a score of dark forms struggled up Michigan hillside through the wind and sleet to a spot less than a hundred yards from the Cooper home. As the last figure joined the little group, the chief conspirator whispered, "'Don't be frightened. All you need to do is steal up quietly on the lawn opposite the drawing-room windows, prepared to be eyewitnesses of what takes place. I will attend to the rest.' After a few moments of breathless expectation, a woman with ragged skirts, black shawl, muddy shoes, old-fashioned bonnet, and hair rumpled over her forehead, was seen to totter up the Cooper steps and ring the bell. There were dark circles under her eyes. Her hands trembled with cold and fatigue. A maid in white apron and cap answered the bell. "'Is Miss Isabel Cooper at home?' quavered the wretched object. "'I want very much to see her.' The maid hesitated. Finally, she said grudgingly, "'Yes, she's in, but I don't know if she can see you. Just step into the hall while I find out.' A few moments later, one of the watchers outside, looking through the long windows at the big entrance hall, exclaimed, "'Here she comes, girls. Now watch for all your worth.'" The thirteenth annual meeting of the Helping Hand Society, held the following evening in the vestry of the Congregational Church, was the largest in the history of the organization. From Brinkdale and Brinkdale Center and South Brinkdale, from fashionable Michigan hillside, and from the less pretentious neighborhoods, the voters had flocked by twos and tens and dozens, overburdened matrons who, although nominally members, had for several years confined their charity to their own homes, now found themselves suddenly dragged to the scene of conflict, while no less than three semi-invalid voters were also driven thither in hacks provided by enthusiastic electioneers. Half an hour after the president's gavel had called the meeting to order, the church vestry was crowded with an assembly of agitated womankind, ranged according to their political preference on the right and left of the room, and eyeing each other like members of hostile camps. The air was simply electric with suppressed excitement. Routine business had been rushed through at telegraphic speed, and the names of Miss Isabel Cooper and Miss Constance James had been placed before the meeting in the briefest possible nominating speeches. It was at this point when the election seemed to have resolved itself into a tug-of-war between two opposing forces that the unexpected happened. Miss Carrie Holbrook arose and in a most eloquent speech nominated Miss Sally Salstonstall as a third candidate for the presidency, much to the surprise of that young lady who half rose in her chair 
A straggling applause broke out at the mention of her name, and then sank back again, blushing violently. The Cooperites stared at each other in bewilderment. What was the meaning of this new move? Before they had become articulate in their surprise, a motion was put by one of the James faction that they proceed to ballot, and as there was no excuse for delay, the motion was carried, and tellers were appointed to collect the votes. Amid profound silence, the three tellers made their rounds, and, emptying their boxes on a table beside the President's desk, proceeded to account. Fifteen minutes later, after a series of comparisons and recounts, during which the faces of the tellers were eagerly scanned by every woman in the room for some tale-tale change of expression, the result was made known as follows. Whole number of votes cast, 203. Necessary to a choice, 102. Isabel Cooper, 95. Constance James, 80. Sally Salstenstall, 27. There being no majority for any one candidate, the House will proceed to another ballot, said the President. The Cooper forces were elated. Only seven more votes, and their candidate would be elected. But why does not Sally Salenstall decline the nomination in favor of Isabel Cooper? With her votes, they could win by a wide margin. During the balloting, a deputation from the Cooper workers swarmed around Miss Salstenstall, pleading that she withdraw her name. But Miss Salstenstall was not to be so easily disposed of. Already a representative of the James forces had convinced her that she held the key of the situation, and at their earnest request she decided to remain in the contest for one more ballot. For the first time a tremor of misgiving ran through the Cooper forces. While the tellers were counting the votes for the second ballot, they exchanged anxious whispers, and, as the chief teller rose to announce the result, one of the most emotional members of the faction giggled hysterically. Meanwhile, the James forces waited, with a stolidity born of a desperate cause, for the report from the second ballot. It was as follows. Whole number of votes cast, 201. Necessary to a choice, 101. Isabel Cooper, 98. Constance James, 83. Sally Salstenstall, 20. And again, there was no choice. At this point, the seesaw of politics tipped to a new angle. Miss Sally Salstenstall, the dark horse candidate, rose slowly from her chair, and while a ripple of excitement ran through the assembly, and a voice tremulous with feeling, extended her thanks to her friends for the high honor they had conferred upon her. Then, after modestly insisting that the honor was unsought and more than she was worthy of, Miss Salstenstall concluded, Fellow members, withdraw my name and ask all my friends, to whom, in conclusion, I again express my thanks for their fidelity and their unwavering support to vote for Miss Isabel Cooper. There was a tremendous outburst of enthusiasm at the end of Miss Salstenstall's remarks. Miss Cooper smilingly acknowledged the congratulations of a score of friends. The James faction sat silent and pale, but with dogged determination in their faces. Miss Goodnow alone wore a smile that was childlike and bland, yet even those who were in the secret hardly dared hope one of her mammoth sleeves concealed the winning card. But all felt that now, if ever, was the time for this descendant of a long line of eminent jurists to prove her mettle. But Miss Goodnell still remained silent while, amid a suspense so keen 
that the air seemed fairly snapping with electricity, it was moved and seconded that the meeting proceed to a third ballot. Suddenly, just as the president was about to put the question, there rang out a clear, low voice. Miss President! It was Rose Goodnow. She stood at the very back of the vestry, cool and self-possessed, in the midst of the turmoil that her sudden move had created. As she waited for the president's recognition, a whisper that the girl was going to withdraw the name of her candidate flew from ear to ear. The James faction exchanged stupefied glances, and the Cooper workers waxed more and more triumphant. After a moment's pause, the president said, "'Miss Goodnow has the floor.' "'Miss President,' continued the Speaker, "'I rise to a question of privilege.' The President hurriedly consulted her Cushing's Manual of Parliamentary Practice, a slight blush rising to her cheeks as someone tittered. Miss Goodnow scowled impressively. After a period of nerve-wracking silence, President Salisbury commanded, "'State the privilege.' "'I wish to ask permission of one of the candidates to withdraw her name from the meeting. Does any member object?' asked the president. Profound silence greeted the question. The Cooperites, eager for the withdrawal of Miss James's name, certainly had no inclination to object, and the rest were too much bewildered to interpose. The chair hears no objections, said the president. Miss Goodnow has the floor. The young lady's manner changed. She smiled significantly, and with head erect, walked rapidly down the aisle and faced the meeting. As she paused for a moment and swept the assembly with an assured glance, the Cooperites sat bolt upright or leaned forward eagerly, even apprehensively. Certainly the alert manner and clean-cut face of the girl betrayed no sign of weakening. Instead, from her dark eyes gleamed a fire inherited from a double line of celebrated lawyers and jurists, a fire so intense that her audience waited breathlessly, as for the peal of thunder sure to follow upon a flash of lightning. But except for that light in her eyes, Miss Goodnell was, to all appearances, perfectly calm. Fellow members of the Helping Hand Charitable Society, she began in a low, impressive voice, rendered all the more impressive by the solemn hush that had now spread over the gathering. I do not rise tonight to champion the cause of anyone, Neither do I address you in the interests of any clique or party. Here she paused for a moment, as if to see the effect of her words, and a shrill whisper of amazement ran around the room, ceasing, however, with her next words. No, fellow members, the matter which I am about to lay before you is one which involves the welfare of our entire society, a matter which demands such consideration as rises far above the plane of mere personal feelings and prejudices. But first, drawing a tablet from her pocket, let me call your attention to our bylaws. I quote from page 8, section 1, name and object. The name of this society shall be the Helping Hand Charitable Society. Its object shall be, as its name implies, to give a helping hand to all persons in distress, whatever their race, religion, or condition. Its motto shall be the golden rule. At this, a few significant glances were turned upon Miss Cooper, who blushed furiously in remembrance of the boxes of candy and New Year's cards. The speaker went on slowly and impressively. Now, fellow members, I ask you to picture in your mind's eye a certain magnificent home on Michigan Hillside, where the daughter of the family lives, 
surrounded by every luxury that wealth can give, subdued murmurs. Last night, in the midst of the storm and sleet, there appeared at the door of this mansion a miserable, wretched-appearing woman, who related in a voice choked with sobs that her husband, a hard-working carpenter, had been laid up for a month with a broken leg. Their little savings were gone, and she was compelled to take in washing to provide the bare necessities of life for eight small children. And in addition to these troubles, the poor woman's appearance indicated that she had but a few years on this earth, that consumption was slowly eating her life away. A thrill of sympathy ran through the assembly. Miss Cooper forced a weak smile of derision, but the orator, borne swiftly along by the current of her own eloquence, continued unheedingly. And how did the young lady of the house show her charity to the sufferer? Did she say, rest here while I get you food and warm clothes for your chilled body? Did she provide for that suffering family? No, fellow members. I happen to know that instead that unhappy woman was put through a course of questions such as these. What church do you attend? Have you ever applied to the town for aid? Does your husband ever use strong drink? Do your children go to Sabbath school? And that, after having been submitted to this painful and humiliating ordeal, this poor sufferer was dismissed with a promise that her case should be investigated next week. And what, fellow members, what do you suppose was the final reason given by that young lady for refusing aid to the sufferer? Nothing more nor less than the plea that she had used all the means at her disposal in sending Christmas boxes to two hundred children of this city. Yes, proceeded Miss Goodnow, unmoved by the sudden tumult aroused by her last words. Yes, it was with such words as these that she showed the miserable creature to the door and let her go out into the night and the storm without money, without food, without even so much as a pitying word. By this time the excitement was at a white heat. Muffled sobs rose from every corner, and fans and smelling bottles had been pressed into service all over the vestry. Indeed, so severe was the nervous strain that three overwrought women were supported, half-fainting to the door, while Isabel Cooper sank in a semi-swoon against the shoulder of her chief lieutenant. But still that relentless voice continued, "'Fellow members, dear friends, as you know, long experience has shown that the highest office in this club is a stepping-stone to early matrimony. Upon our choice of president hangs more than the development of the helping hand's purposes, high and noble though they be. Yes, upon our choice, stamping as it does the successful candidate as a representative of the highest and noblest type of woman, depends the future of a home, the destinies of unborn generations. Now, fellow members, concluded the orator solemnly, having heard so much, you know, without any words of mine, the name of the young lady on Michigan Hillside. What you do not know, however, is this. I was the old woman. For just a second, a dazed stillness, like that following the explosion of a bomb, held the entire assembly. Then, as from a score of members burst the cry, That's so! We saw her! The room suddenly resounded with loud sobs and hysterical laughter. Some overwrought members of the James Force literally fell upon each other's necks, while the Cooperites, with drawn faces, crowded together in the feverish desperation 
of those who see the destruction of their last hope. As for Isabel Cooper, she started bolt upright, restored to consciousness as if by magic by this master stroke of the enemy, and sat staring in rigid expectancy at the relentless orator. But Miss Goodnow, having marked the effect of her final shot, had no mind to weaken its effect. "'Fellow members,' she said briefly, "'on second thought, I will not ask permission of a certain candidate to withdraw her name. Brother, I leave it to your sense of duty and right to see that tonight the Helping Hand Charitable Society remains loyal to its high and noble principles. Miss President, I move that we proceed to a third ballot.' Hardly had Miss Goodnow taken her seat when the able lieutenant of the Cooper party was on her feet. "'Miss President and fellow members,' she began, "'since the honor of our candidate has been questioned, I hereby withdraw the name of Miss Cooper, and as the hour is late, move that, to facilitate proceedings, the chief teller be instructed to cast one ballot for Miss Constance James.' Upon which, amid sobs and laughter and cries of, "'What's the matter with Miss James? She's all right!' The motion was seconded and carried by a thundering and unanimous aye. And as the result of the third ballot, Miss Constance James was formally declared the president of the Helping Hand Charitable Society. A few days later, an expressman called at the Michigan Hillside Mansion and took away a huge box, inside of which lay a mass of silk and lace, accompanied by the following note. Messrs. Bluefern & Company, Fifth Avenue, New York. Gentlemen, my daughter Isabel complains that the enclosed costume does not fit. She will call and see you in a week or so and make some mutually agreeable arrangement with regard to a cold-weather garment. Very truly yours, James W. Cooper, Brinkdale, January 7. End of Section 4 Recording by Julie Burks